Have you ever noticed how much of this life is about waiting? Here's my problem with that. I don't like to wait. In fact, most of the people I know and even our culture appears not to like to wait. You probably see evidences of this all around. We have fast food, speedy checkout lines, overnight shipping. Uh, And not only that, I have some friends who when they text me now, just because they can't stand to actually write letters, send me emojis. Have you ever actually tried to look up what an emoji means? Like on the internet, it's hard. There's not a key for that. And so they'll send pictures rather than actually using words. Why? Well, because writing a sentence, I guess, would just take too long. And so we live in a culture that just cannot stand waiting. Uh, I noticed this about myself the other day when Carrie and, and me, we were watching a movie, uh, Dunkirk. Now, if you haven't watched that, then let me just go ahead and ruin that for you. Uh, it basically, it takes place in Dunkirk, France during World War II, where the Allies are being pressed in onto the, the beaches of Dunkirk. So they've got the Nazis on one side, and then overhead, uh, all during the movies, they're trapped on this beach, and they're waiting for boats to rescue them. And all during this, they have bombs that are coming and being dropped on them, gunfires coming in. And, and, and in the middle of this movie, as I'm watching it, I mean, it's really hard because you see these folks, it looks like they're waiting in what is uh, almost the scenario that has no hope. And, and so boats are leaving, and then you'll find bodies kind of washing back to shore. Now, in the middle of that movie, what I noticed was, was that I got really tired of waiting for all of those boats to come rescue them. And I don't know if I was more disturbed by the violence, which I was, or the actual waiting for 330,000 people to be rescued by all kinds of boats, both private and, and naval, uh, from this certain beach. In my heart, I was getting anxious because they were having to wait so long. I was like, why won't somebody call an Uber or something, Right. And so in the midst of this, I am noticing that I, in my heart, have this issue, not only with waiting, but even with watching people have to wait. Well, I think that is the nature of the human heart. In fact, sometimes I believe the Christian life can feel a lot like Dunkirk, though as we look to navigate an increasingly impatient nation, we can forget that much of the Christian life centers on patiently waiting on the Lord. And that's actually a spiritual issue. And so we're back in our looking at Jesus series in Isaiah 25, where God punctuates his salvation with victory. Now you'll remember that we're in the first third of Isaiah where they have been waiting for this long-awaited Davidic spirit-anointed king who would come and rescue his people and set all things right. In Isaiah 13 to 23, uh, God showed the devastation of the nations through ten oracles. Uh, And then last week we looked at Isaiah 24, where God actually comes and he devastates the nation. It's almost a summation of the previous 10 uh, chapters. And he talks about the way that he devastates the city, uh, this world city that has set itself against God. He has silenced them. And from the midst of this, we hear this song of joy from the people of God as they begin to come from the ends of the earth, taking a pilgrimage to Mount Zion. They sing along the way as they are gathering to see the king on his hill. It's a glorious image. And I believe that Isaiah 25 that we're looking at this morning actually picks up as these people have gathered from their pilgrimage uh, in the the place where God is with his people forever. So here we are in Isaiah. And what we're going to see this morning is this. So if you take notes, a great thing to write down. We're going to see that God's providence grounds our patience for the return of King Jesus with infinite and eternal 
joy. I know that's a mouthful, but let me say it again. God's providence grounds our patience for the return of King Jesus with infinite eternal joy. We see that in a number of ways, but first we see it in verses 1 to 5. So Isaiah is going to build a case for us about why we ought to wait, how we ought to wait. And he begins with this, that God's providential care is praiseworthy. God's providential care is praiseworthy. So there is a discernible change here in Isaiah's demeanor and the way that he is speaking in relationship to chapter 24. Isaiah, you'll remember, he just cried out, woe is me, in chapter 24, as he gazed at this future apocalyptic devastation of the nations. And with the sound of God's people singing joyfully in the background, we see devastation everywhere. But notice here in verse 1, Isaiah's tune changes. And he's moved in verse 1, did you see this? To say, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You and praise Your name. You'll notice here that Isaiah speaks in the first person to his God in a very personal way. He says, I will trust you. And he praises him for three things. And those three things you can see in verses 1 to 5, uh, each one begins with, for you have. He's pointing to something that he will look back on that God has done, for you have. So look at those uh, with me. Take note of those as we look at verses 1 to 5 together. Look there with me in your copy of God's Word. Isaiah 25.1, this is what he says. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You, I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify You, cities of ruthless nations will fear You. For You have been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Now I take these things, these three things that he's mentioned, that he is praising God for, actually to be one thing. They will notice that this one thing is the thing that shifts Isaiah's heart towards praise from woe. Now the first thing is the providence of God in verse 2. Notice there that he said that God has done wonderful things, uh, plans formed from old, faithful and sure. Wonderful things. Wonderful things is, is a description that actually speaks of God's miraculous acts in redemptive history through which God has saved His people. And if you remember in Isaiah 9, in verse 6, it's also a description that speaks of the coming Messiah who would be called Wonderful Counselor, an instrument of God's redemption. But notice that he's not just going to look back and praise God for His miracles, but also that these miracles are actually part of plans that have been formed from old, faithful, and sure. So he's praising the God who is sovereign over all of history. Now that speaks of God's providence. Now the Heidelberg Confession speaks of the providence of God and actually defines it. It it asks, what is the providence of God? And then it answers it in question 27. It says this, 
It is the almighty and ever, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds the heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yet all things come not by chance, but by his, father, his fatherly hand." In other words, Isaiah's future praise is going to erupt from him looking back on history and seeing how God's sovereign hand brought about all that he promised. Now the last two four you haves tell us what those wonderful things are. And I love this. You know, uh, I'm sure many of you have talked about the wonderful things that God has had planned for you. Um, I, I don't think you meant it in this first sense, right? In this first sense, he says the wonderful things are that the proud, self-sufficient city of man is destroyed beyond repair. Just like we saw in verse 10 in his oracles against the nations. So you might not want to, you know, give that as a note to somebody that's about to go off to college. Like, I know the wonderful plans that God has for you, right? Um, At least you don't want to cite this text. Uh, But what we find here is, is that this city will actually never be rebuilt again. Now, as you read commentaries, commentators are going to say, we're not really sure, they're torn over whether or not the strong peoples glorifying God and these ruthless nations fearing God have actually submitted to God's Messiah by faith or not. Now, I don't think so in context. Uh, This is not a thing to separate over, but I don't think that that's what this text is saying. Because notice in verse 5, He's going to come back to them, and he says, God subdues the noise of the foreigners, and the song of the ruthless is put down. It's put down, these ruthless. So what's going on here? Well, I think that this simply describes Isaiah looking back on the city of man that God has silenced in Isaiah 24 in the future. So the image here really is, I think, a lot like Philippians 2. You might remember in verses 10 to 11, we get this image on the last day where at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the the reality is Jesus is coming back, and all people are going to bend the knee to him. Every person on heaven and earth will bend the knee. I love what Matt Chandler says here. You know, you've got two choices. Either you can bend the knee or you can bend the knee. Like, everybody's going to bend the knee. And that's exactly what we'll find on this last day, I believe, what we see here in this text. But there's a last thing that we find. Uh, Notice the third four you have tells us that God is a refuge to his people uh, who are poor and needy. See, the image here is that of God being a shelter from the scorching heat of the sun and the flood-like rains of the attacks of their enemies. God's people, his weak people, run to him as their strong refuge as he saves them. And on the last day, Isaiah sees what felt like the chaos of this world on the ground level. That devastation that was all around him is actually the kind, salvific, redeeming grace of his sovereign God from a satellite perspective of the future gazing back on God's providential hand all along the way. Do you see it? It's one of perspective. So from the ground level, of human experience, it is terrifying. But as he zooms out to the future and looks back on what God has accomplished, he says, look at what God has done. Brothers and sisters, that is a perspective that all of us need 
over this life. Catch this. It's just as Charles Spurgeon says, when we can't trace God's hand in our lives, we must trust God's heart. We know that in the end, God is going to make sense of everything. And we were waiting for that day when everything makes sense. But this side of the new heavens and the new earth, we should expect the kind of chaos that we find here. Let me just ask you, do you think that maybe, just maybe this morning, you need to be reminded of God's providential care for you amidst the chaos of your life? Could it be that maybe that the reality that God is sovereign over the details of your life is actually something that has escaped you. You've wandered from confidence in God in the practical, everyday outworkings of your life. Things look chaotic, and so you wonder if God has in some way lost control, right? I mean, have you ever been in one of those moments where everything feels like it's very chaotic and out of control? And your experience is chaos. And so then you start to ask yourself, I wonder if God is in control? Like maybe God is out of control here? I'm sure that none of you have ever asked that kind of question. Way too good of Christians for that, right? But you know how the fog of war can blind you to the beauty of the heavens. And when your father, I mean, when your wife gets cancer or your husband or your dad dies or when you suddenly lose your job or your marriage falls apart or your girlfriend dumps you, or sin seems to have more of a grip on you than you have on it, life can feel chaotic and out of control, and it can affect the way that we are thinking about God. Or the way that we are thinking about God can affect the way we think about those experiences. And when it feels like life is out of control, we can begin to, in some ways, have a wrong view of God. See, if you're a believer, you know that God is mysteriously at work in every detail of your life, often and even most usually in unperceptible ways. God might be doing His greatest works in the times that you most or least actually feel it. Because that's the way God is at work in our lives. In mysterious ways. So let me just encourage you this morning to store up God's providence in your heart and let the truth of God's sovereignty actually shape and define and give meaning to the feelings that well up amidst the chaos that will come to you. See, I think it's important for us to meditate on these kinds of things. So think about God's providential care in the Scriptures and what God has revealed of Himself to us. Think about Genesis 50, where Joseph had a really bad season in life. Now, some of you might be thinking you had a bad season in life. I'm guessing that your brothers did not throw you into a pit and tell your dad that you died and then sell you into slavery. That was his bad experience. And not only that, once he was in slavery, he was sent to prison. He became an enemy of the king for a season. And things were looking really bad. And then what we find is, is that God, through his grace and plan and providence, worked in a unique way to the point that he became second in charge of Egypt and saved all of Israel because of God's gracious providence in his life. And at the end of the days, his brothers came to him and apologized in Genesis 50. And you wonder, well, how is he going to respond? He could have had him killed, but instead he said, no, no, you need to understand that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, all that that crazy, chaotic 
stuff that didn't make sense, I see God's hand in it all. Or or, or what about uh, this? Can you say with confidence, as the psalmist does, that the Lord sits in heaven and does as He pleases? Like, I might not see God's work, but God is always at work. Or what about your confidence in Paul's promise to us? Glorious promise in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God. Now what do all things mean? Does it just mean all good things? No, it means all good things and bad things, and probably in context, especially bad things, because those are the things that we question whether or not God's in control of those. And what about Ephesians 1.11, where Paul also says that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We have a a big and sovereign God. See, Paul has confidence in this. I love what Paul also says in Philippians 1.6, which is grounded in God's plan, not His hands, saying, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't those the kind of things that you just need to nourish your soul with? I mean, when chaos breaks out, isn't this where you need to run? God is sovereign. It's the providential care of God that Isaiah wants to instill in the hearts of others because it's the thing that he's instilled in his heart. It's that thing that he wants Judah to cling to whenever they face the suffering that is about to come upon them. That's why I think it takes, for me, too much faith not to believe in God in this chaotic world. I think being an atheist is just too hard for me, to be honest. If you're a non-Christian, I don't know what it is that you cling to amidst the devastations of this life. Don't miss this. You can't say that that God's not good because there is suffering in this life. Everybody faces suffering. And even more than that, we serve a God who sent His very Son, who willingly came and entered into our sufferings with us to rescue us from them. So whatever we say about God and His sovereignty, we can't say that He is not good. Could it be maybe this morning, if you've not put your faith in Christ, that you're longing for this life The longings that are unfulfilled maybe are really do have more meaning than what you know. And maybe it's this morning that you just need to be reminded, that you need to be told perhaps for the first time that you actually have longings that this world will not satisfy because God has made you for something more than what you have been living for. Let me just give you a picture of what that more is. A picture of the ultimate ends of God's people. Because that's exactly what Isaiah does. He says, notice God's plan. He always keeps His plan. But not only that, notice how good the plan is. Your future. Look at your future. He says God's people will eat a victory feast when God eats death. That's our second point. God's people will eat a victory feast when God eats death. In verses 6-8. to Now you remember uh, the famous quote by Martin Martin Luther. Who said we are all beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Well, I believe here we're told that someday bread's going to be cake. This is going to be a good day when we have the rich foods that come in heaven. See, brothers and sisters, we can take a moment right now, and I think we do need to, we need to take a moment to talk about our future according to Isaiah. Are you okay with that? Thinking about your future, the future that awaits you in Christ? 
Are y'all with me? This is good stuff. All right, here's, here's what's coming. We're told here that God tells us exactly where this plan is going that we can trust that God is going to bring about. Our future is incredibly bright when we gather together on Mount Zion, the city of God in verses 6 to 8. And look what he says. This is just a glorious text. It's picked up on in in Revelation. Uh, John gets to see this uh, himself. But here's what it says in verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord, the Lord has spoken. And what a glorious promise. This world, so broken. I don't think I need to even prove that to you that this morning. But it's so broken that we regularly need to be reminded of this future. We need, to, we need to make sure that we are constantly tattooing this kind of thing into our hearts so that we don't forget it. The last day needs to shape how we live every single day. When all of God's people will gather in Zion after the Lord of hosts has subdued all of our enemies, our all-powerful God, are you coming in close, is going to cook for us. Did you know that? God's a cook? I didn't know that. We see it right here. God cooks stuff. Man, I don't know about you, but I've had some good meals. I'm not talking about Chick-fil-A either, right? Uh, Our favorite meal as a family is is ribs. My wife makes these ribs. They're incredible. Uh, My son, Johnny, loves food. God's judgment on him just to keep him honest and waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. He can't have gluten. And so he loves food, can't eat gluten. It's one of these things, makes him sad, but he's always happy when we have ribs. And when we have ribs, we always have to remind him, Johnny, make sure you spit out the bones as you eat, right? Because he just loves it. Like he just delights in the food that's being made. It is good food. It's great food. It is not anywhere to be compared to what a meal is like coming from the hands of God who created our taste buds. Just think about that. The feast that awaits. The feast that awaits us. Uh, I learned a saying just uh, yesterday, um, or just this last week, uh, some friends of mine said something was good, and they said, here's how you say something was good. You really put your foot into it. And I was like, you put your foot into it? I said, like baseball, like you step into it? And they're like, oh, no, no. It's like when you cook a really good meal. You say the cook really put their foot into it. I was like, why would you want the cook to put their foot into it? That sounds horrible. But I'm teaching you something because I just learned something. If it's a really good meal, you say the cook put their foot into it. And it's a good thing. It's not gross like it sounds. It's great. Well, how much better whenever God puts his foot into it and cooks us a meal, a glorious meal for the glory of his name to celebrate himself. Now catch this. What's really important here isn't how great the meal is, and it will be great. It will be amazing. The real point is what it celebrates, and that is the victory that he has accomplished through defeating death. Notice here, what we're told is, is that God Himself, after He cooks, He is going, it says, just in case you think that God's a killjoy, killjoy, He's already planned the best party ever, and it is all to celebrate His sweet victory. It's the victory that God 
has accomplished in swallowing up the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over the nations so that they cannot see Him and don't have the light of understanding that they can believe and trust in Him. It is the shadow or the veil of death. And God on that day will swallow up death forever. So as we are eating this celebration feast, God is eating death. That's really interesting. In Canaanite religion, uh, they worshipped the god Mont as the, the, guy, the god of death. And he was actually pictured as a, a big mouth. A giant mouth that would swallow up everyone. There was no human being that was not swallowed up ultimately by death. And yet here we have a picture of God. And Isaiah says one day God is going to eat the God that swallows everyone. And he will no longer swallow people anymore. No longer will people be fearful of death. Or think in some sense that they have to live only for what they see before them because you got to get what you can get now because there's nothing to look forward to. He says the future is incredibly bright, internal and infinite and full of joy. This is a great day that he is pointing us to. And on that day, you'll notice that as the reign of terror ceases, God will glorify himself as the Lord of life and displaying his sovereignty over death itself. God on that day will wipe away every tear. Every tear this broken world creates. Every tear that you have experienced because of the brokenness of this world. He will remove the reproach of His people. Now that might mean shame. It also can mean the taunts of an enemy. And I believe it's likely that it is the taunts of an enemy here. I take this as the taunts of death. Who seems to be in the driver's seat over sinful humanity. And what's fascinating is, as Paul is talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll remember that he actually turns around and because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross in defeating death, begins to taunt death itself. Oh, death, where is your sting? (laughs) Right? Like, there's no power in death anymore because of what God has accomplished so that he can taunt the enemy that taunted them, that ultimate enemy. And notice that verse 8 ends with, for the Lord has spoken. The certainty that God's people will celebrate the death of death is grounded in God's Word. See, we need to fix our eyes on the inheritance that awaits us. The fulfillment of God's promises for our future. It's so important. We need to trust the providence of God in one hand and the promises of God in the other. And those things together are what help us to be a people who are ready to serve God. And as Isaiah prepares God's few for enduring suffering patiently, he wants them to fix their futures firmly in their minds. He wants them to smell the feast of God as they wait, right? Have you ever had a a meal, like a Thanksgiving meal, and you started to smell it like maybe a couple of hours early? And as you smelt it, it made you hungrier for it? And you almost couldn't wait by the time it got time to eat because for two hours, like your, you know, your body's just kicking. It's like you're salivating a little bit, like it's Pavlovian stuff. And you're like, man, it's time to eat. Well, I think that's exactly the kind of image that we see here. We find here that Isaiah wants us to salivate over the coming kingdom and the goodness that awaits us. And that's exactly the picture that he draws for his people. He wants them to know that every tear is a promise from God that he will wipe it away and make all things new. He will restore everything that has been lost. But here's the tension. We live in the already not yet of death. 
You know what I'm talking about? There's a real sense in which the New Testament we find that Romans, like in Romans 9, 6, where Paul says, Jesus is the first person to step outside of the dominion of death by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil at the cross. He is our great conquering king. But speaking of the resurrection, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in other words, the future of death has been set in stone because of the word of God and what Christ accomplished at the cross. But the fullness of that experience still awaits the return of Jesus Christ. And we are living between those two experiences. Do you see it? In other words, the sound of death, the last enemy going down, is going to be a gulp. But we haven't heard the gulp yet. And that's why we can sing that it is not death to die in Christ who promises us eternal life. We will be raised up on that last day. And here's why this is so important. So much of this life is waiting on God. Do you hear me? Do you follow where he's going? Like it might seem random pictures here, but Isaiah is moving us somewhere. He says, I want you to hold the providence of God firmly in one hand and the promises of God in the other hand, because there's going to be a whole lot of waiting and you're going to need both of these. As you are waiting and as you face sufferings, you need to know that these two things are what are going to hold you fast to the gospel. That's exactly what we find here. Isaiah waited for the first coming of Christ. And we await the second coming of Christ, of King Jesus, where we get to partake in the marriage feast of the Lamb. And a confidence in God keeping His promise of eternal infinite joy is critical for God's people. Because third, God's people wait on God. God's people wait on God to make good on His promises. We see that in verses 9-12. to So when you look to today, what you look to today, the things that you are living for, that your eyes are set on, those things actually determine the future that you will find on the last day. You hear me? That's what Isaiah wants us to know. The things that you are living for, that you're looking to today, those are the things that determine the future that you will find on the last day. And according to Isaiah, there really are two ways to live. You can either trust God's plan or the works of your own hands. You can either trust God's plan or the works of your own hands. One way leads to a new creation of infinite joy. And the other leads to humanity undone and a creation undone. That's the picture that Isaiah draws for us. See, Zion's people are waiting on God while Moab... Mentioned in verses 10 to 12, actually represents proud humanity trusting in themselves just as they did in Isaiah 15 to 16. So Moab is back from Isaiah 15 and 16, representing proud humanity trusting in the work of their own hands. Notice how God's people live between the promise and the fulfillment, though. Verse 9. Verse 9. It says, God's people will wait on God to save them. Look there with me at verse 9. It's a good verse to think about. It says there, it will be said on that day, this last day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So God's people, they've been waiting on God's Spirit-anointed King to save them according to God's plan. God promised them a King, and on this day they get to see this King. How do they wait? Well, they wait with an eye towards the new heavens and the new earth where they feast with God, right? 
They wait as they trust in the providence of God and His sovereignty over all things. And so much of the life of the people of God has always centered on waiting for God to show up and deliver them. Uh, Waiting is hard. Our culture hates waiting. My flesh hates waiting. Uh, And I understand other people who get frustrated by waiting. I, I actually had somebody honk at me yesterday anticipating the light turning green. You know what I'm talking about? I was like, it didn't even turn green yet. And they're like, just in case, I wanted you to be ready. We just hate to wait. And our flesh hates to wait. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of just what we are waiting for. And here's where the danger is. I believe that so many of us can wait for the wrong things and it can lead to a spiritual stuntedness. Let me give you an example. Uh, I have a friend um, I I met at the gym the other day. And uh, I've known him for a little while. And we were talking about his life and he, he had just lost his job. He was looking for a new job. And um, he said, in the midst of all of this, it's okay because I know God has something better around the corner. Anybody heard that before? Maybe you said that. And I said, okay, so what does he mean by that? What's better around the corner? Now, I like the way that sounds. I think it's good for us to pray for that. But as I read my Bible, I don't know that I found the verse yet that says, and those who lose their jobs always get better jobs. Have y'all seen that? Nobody. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to disappoint you. But the the Bible, that's not one of the promises that we're given in the Scriptures, right? What is it that's better around the corner that awaits us according to the Bible? All kinds of things, including, by the way, this reality that one day God will make all things new and wipe away every tear and dot, dot. I mean, things are glorious in the future. And so I think the thing that we need to recognize is there is a danger that is very akin to the prosperity gospel when we begin to believe promises the Word of God does not make to us. And we set our hopes and dreams in those things. And then when they don't happen, we believe that God is a liar even though He didn't promise that in the first place. We need to make sure that we are trusting in the true promises of God. Now, by God's grace, God is so good to us in so many ways that we do not deserve. You know... As we pray, we know that God has done amazing things for many of you and for me and for my family. He has answered our prayers in incredible ways. You know, sometimes good people suffer and lose jobs. But the promise we ultimately cling to isn't a better job. It is actually that God Himself is going to rescue us. In hard times, they tempt us to look away from God to other things than the actual promises of God. Here's what God's Word actually says in 1 Peter 4, 18-19. He says this, If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's worried about our relationship with Him, right? And others. And he says, verse 19, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. You see that? He's committing... He's saying, commit yourself to the providence of God amidst suffering. Now, what kind of suffering is he talking about? Well, probably not your kind of suffering, right? Probably somebody else's. No, I think all of our kinds of suffering. He's saying, trust and put your confidence in the providence of God, knowing that our future is incredibly bright. The corner that we are awaiting is the return of Jesus. So God may give you a better job and save your sick husband and bring your lost child to faith in Christ, but our calling is to waiting patiently. Waiting patiently, obediently on the sure promise that King Jesus will return and set things right. 
The Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin wrote a book on waiting on God. It was called Patience and Its Perfect Work. And in it, he says this. He says, Patience includes and comprehends an act of waiting upon God and His good pleasure. Waiting is is waiting on God and His good pleasure. God's plans for God's glory and for our good. Let me just offer, as you think about this, I think there's some ways that we need to be thinking about this idea of patiently waiting on God. As we are hanging on to the providence of God in one hand and the promises of God in the other, we, we need to recognize some things about patience. And the first is this, Christ is our model of waiting well. Christ is the model of waiting well. We see this in Hebrews 12, 1-2, where Christians are encouraged to endure, to run the race with endurance. And, and you'll remember that right after saying run, the, uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us, he says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is an example for us. He's also the power to be able to endure and to be patient when we don't want to be patient. Anybody here like to be patient? Just curious. Like really naturally? Okay, David over here. Anybody else? Yeah? Okay, some good patient people. Most of us are not good at being patient. Right? That's the reality of this life. We need Jesus to help us to be patient. And He modeled it. And do you notice what it was that drove Jesus' patient? It was the joy that was set before Him. That's what it was. See, Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men, and He opened not His mouth because of the certainty of the joy that was set before Him. So following Jesus means waiting, which means taking up our crosses to the glory of Christ. But not only do we know that Jesus is the model of what it looks like, we also know that the Holy Spirit is the source of the kind of patient waiting that we need. Patient waiting is not something that is natural to our flesh. Patient waiting, the patience that the Bible speaks of, is a fruit of the Spirit. All good gifts come from God. And we know that we're told in Galatians 5, as Paul uh, starts to discuss and he lists out that that litany of fruits of the Spirit, he says the, the fruits of the Spirit are love, peace, joy, kindness, and what? Patience. My people are a patient people, and they're patient not because of anything intrinsically in them, but because of my spirit which I have given them, which makes them patient in ways that are not of this world. In other words, the patience of God requires something from God and not necessarily from you. So we must be united to Christ to be patient as Christ is patient. We must come to Him empty-handed as though we're those who are poor in spirit, knowing that we are needy of Him, not only for salvation, but even to endure patiently to the end when He returns. We are desperately in needy of Christ all along the way. And that means that we need to pray. We need to pray. If we understand that the patience that we need with our husbands, right? Uh, with our wives, with our, our, our children, uh, with others, is actually a kind of patience that comes from the Lord. We don't need to just like tie up our sneakers a little bit tighter so that we can be patient with people. We actually need to pursue the patience that comes from the Lord asking Him, coming to the throne of grace, trusting that He alone can give us what we need. Believing truly as we wait that God can give us what we need. 
You know, you know that as you are waiting, you, you learn to pray, don't, don't you? It's as you're waiting that you begin to have to pray to God because you're frustrated about waiting. And you're reminded of Jesus who says you have not because you ask not. And so you're asking God to do one of two things. Either one, change my circumstances, or two, change my heart. And if A is the case, then please still change my heart, right? Like help me to love you and be patient as I ought to be. But also we know that if really we, we want to understand the fruit of waiting, there are a number of fruits. Here's some fruits. One is that God is always at work in our waiting. God is always at work in our waiting. One of the fruits of patiently waiting. God's always at work. God's always at work in the providences of this life, transforming our hearts from one degree of glory to the next. Do you see how that works? We're waiting and it feels like nothing's happening. We feel completely out of control. We feel like nothing's getting done because we're not doing it. And yet if we understand the providence of God, we know that He is in charge of the details of our lives. And that is perhaps the best doctrine to explain why we are waiting and frustrated. is because God is doing heart work in ways that we would not do if not for God. It was just a, a few days ago, I broke my phone and the screen was broken and I went into the cell phone shop. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting uh, I had an appointment, but they lost it, and so I had to wait for an hour for them to find it. And then, like, I had to wait for, like, an hour and a half for them to fix it. And so I'm sitting there waiting on a cell phone for, like, two and a half hours, which I need for the next day because they're about to close. And so I'm sitting there in the waiting room, just waiting, feeling like, what a waste of life. And I have to believe that the reason I was in that room was for this moment. That's all I got. See, patiently waiting humbles us. It humbles us. We discover that we really are not in control. Isn't that one of the thoughts that goes in your mind? Like if I was in charge, it would not be like this. It would be so much better than this. You know, there would be cake and not bread. This would be a better thing if I was, not, if I was in charge. But I am so clearly not in charge because I'm having to wait in a way that I don't want to. And you begin to sense that you are not God. And not only do you sense that you're not God, you realize that there's a little piece of you that wants to be God in ways that are not healthy. And God is doing work in your soul, reminding you of the glory and grace and goodness of God and your own sin and impatience. And you're freshly reminded of your need for Him, even in that moment of patience. It comes in strange ways. You know, I still remember when um, I was... Um, First married, Carrie and I had Benjamin. Benjamin woke me up in the middle of the night one night, and I was like, well, I'm going to be like the good husband because Carrie always like wakes up with the baby, and so I start to get up, and I'm going to change him, and I'm thinking I can do it in the dark, and then all of a sudden, we get the diaper off, and like pee, is, it's going everywhere. It hits my face, it hits my clothes, it hits the bed, it hits who knows what. There's still things that we did not find that I'm sure it touched. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And Carrie like wakes up and she's like freaking out and I'm like freaking out and I'm like, the baby's, Benjamin's crying. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Benjamin, you were, you were peeing on my face, on my house, on my life. So frustrating. And in the middle of that, I just realized how impatient I was. Now, one of the, the nice benefits of that was that Carrie never again asked me to get up in the middle of the night to change Benjamin. <laughs> that was great. 
But the bigger work that was being done was just me understanding how impatient I was. God working through my heart to humble me. I'm a big work and God's still at work. But God is always at work in that. And He's humbling us along the way. Helping us to see that we are not God. That we would not make a good God. That it's a good thing that God is God. Not only that, we know that waiting sanctifies us. And makes us patient and content in all circumstances. And all of you know uh, Romans 5 where we find that it's the patience that ultimately works to contentment. And God is actually working contentment in us. Making us content in all things. As He transforms us from one degree of glory into the next in the image of His Son, Jesus. Through all of those, have you ever thought about that? Through all those little daily sufferings and trials. All of those little moments of waiting and wanting. God is actually at work in all of those. He's working on you, and He's working on me, and He's working on us. And all of that to magnify the glory of His Son and the glory of His name on that last day. In our waiting, in those moments that seem so insignificant, God is at work. I mean, that's if you believe your Bibles. But not only that, we know that another fruit is that godly waiting trusts the providence of God, and it grows in the providence of God. Do you remember Job and Job 1 who received a message after message of disaster, losing his possessions and even his own children? And he responds in a way that I'm just not sure that I would be able to. But in verse 20, he responds by falling to the ground and worshiping God. Lost everything. Well, how do you respond? Job worships. And this is what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job trusted God. He trusted God that everything that he had was from God. And he had no right to it, because God was God. He was sovereign. He was in charge. And how much more should we, with an eye of Christ, an eye towards Christ and what He has done and the future that He has promised us in the resurrection, how much more should we be able to praise God in all that we face? I want to encourage you, this kind of waiting, I think, isn't something that you need to do alone. It's something that you need a local church to help you with. In fact, did you know that we regularly, when we meet together, are feasting together? Is a small picture in part, of the great feast that is to come. We are holding one another accountable at the communion table for being the people of God as we await the great future that awaits us so that we are feasting on Jesus until we feast with Jesus. Isn't that great? We're taking communion together as we join together, and yet that is just a small picture of the glorious end that awaits us. And that's why you always end communion with what Paul says at the end of communion. He says, and we do this so often, until the Lord comes. Right? And that's when the food gets really good. It's when God cooks for us. So we need to patiently wait on God. Because the last fruit, of course, of patiently wait on God is really what Isaiah is talking about here. And that is the internal infinite joy that is coming. You wait because God is worth waiting for. Because what He is ushering in, what He's bringing for you, the things that He is going to make all new, the hope that He has promised you, it is worth the wait And that is one of the powerful, I think, defenses against sin in your life is regularly reminding yourself that it is worth waiting obediently on God because of the future that awaits you and me. There is nothing like it. That's why Luke 12 says that we need to stand dressed and keep our candles lit because nobody knows the hour when Jesus is coming back and we want to be ready. The Moabites were not ready. They were not waiting. 
The proud Moabites were trusting in their hands rather than God's plan. And as a result, they don't experience this kind of new creation that is glorious and unlike anything that we have ever seen, that is so much better than what we have now. It's a restored earth with God. Instead, what they have is an uncreation, much like what we saw in Isaiah 24. So this morning, if you've not put your faith in Christ, I would love to talk to you about how you can have a hope for the future. You don't have to believe that this is all there is, and it's not that good. You can really have a future with God forever, and I would love to tell you about what that looks like, what it looks like to have King Jesus in His coming kingdom. Let's pray together. We pray with me.